Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And Dana and I are very excited to be bringing you our first episode of our new podcast. In Jumping Off the Ivory Tower, I'm going to be talking with visionaries, social justice warriors, and people we're calling system disruptors, folks who found themselves challenging the status quo in the justice system, and exploring with them in conversation what motivates them and how their experiences have changed them. We're hoping that Jumping Off the Ivory Tower will be a platform to showcase some of the important work going on both in Canada and internationally. And our weekly episodes are going to tackle topics from across the social justice universe, including, of course, stories of self-represented litigants, access to justice issues, and innovation and change in the legal profession, but also work on sexual violence, racism and Islamophobia, disability rights, legal education, and much more. So if you don't know Julie yet, uh, you're going to come to know her very well, and you're going to be lucky for that. Uh, Julie McFarlane is a law professor whose research and writing has inspired debate over lots of important social justice issues, including access to justice, the future of legal services, transforming legal education, how Muslim communities relate to the Canadian legal system, and justice for victims of sexual violence. And she was also recently voted one of Canada's most influential lawyers in Canadian Law Magazine's top 25 list. We were very proud of her for that. <laughs> so just a little bit about the structure of our podcast. Uh, each episode will feature a conversation between Julie and an invited guest, and each guest will reflect on what motivates them, their story, and how their experiences have changed them, both personally and professionally. And after that, we will have a short debrief session between Julie and myself over what really stood out to each of us about that conversation. And finally, we're going to end each episode with an In Other News segment, which will be a brief review of some of the standout events or unfolding stories in the social justice universe. And we will post links to all of those things on our podcast page on our website, which you can visit at representingyourselfcanada.com. And you will also be able to subscribe to this podcast, Jumping Off the Ivory Tower, by searching that phrase in whatever podcast app you use. You can also find us on SoundCloud and, of course, on iTunes. So today's episode, our very first, is one we're calling It Couldn't Happen to Me. And we're featuring a former SRL and current A to J advocate, Jennifer Mueller. And Julie, can you tell us a little bit about Jennifer? Jennifer Muller is someone who has become quite well known um, for speaking at events across Canada about her experience as a self-represented litigant and I think always leaving a lasting impact on everyone who hears her story. And I am now delighted to work with Jennifer as a board member um, for the advisory board of National Self-Represented Litigants Project and also as a colleague in the Access to Justice community. However, my first conversation with Jennifer, which I remember very vividly, was in 2012 when she was a participant in the National SRL study. 
And Jennifer recounted to me then the story of what had happened to her when, as a single mom of a two-year-old, she was taken to court over custody and access by the father of her daughter with whom she'd had a brief relationship. They weren't married. Jennifer was taken completely by surprise by uh, being served and immediately hired a lawyer. Uh, She was very anxious about facing the other side because her daughter's father was a lawyer himself. But as she explains, very quickly ran out of money to pay that lawyer. So she struggled on, on her own through the justice system, including, amazingly, a nine-day trial. And her story has stayed with me ever since. And I want to say as well that although we're going to hear Jennifer's story and it's the story of a mom today, I want to acknowledge there are plenty of dads out there facing similar challenges to Jennifer. So in her real life day job, Jennifer Muller is a schools counselor in British Columbia. So I reached her during her lunch break one day this past July. Hi, Jennifer. It's Julie. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for taking this time to talk. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So I'm going to jump right in here, Jennifer, um, and I'm going to ask you to go back, if you don't mind, to 2008 when Mm -hmm. you found yourself pulled into a legal action over the custody of your young daughter. Now, you weren't married to her dad, and in fact, he didn't live with you or your daughter, Mm -hmm. and you were primarily responsible for her daily care, and then you found yourself pulled into a legal dispute. So... Can you say a little bit about what you first thought and felt, and what did you do then? Well, I I was served without notice, so it was an extremely traumatic and upsetting time. Um, My mind was just reeling. I was panicked and scared about everything from, um, you know, what I would do within the next five minutes or the next day, to what might occur weeks or months ahead of me. And yes. I know right, I knew right away that I needed a lawyer and knew that I would need a very good lawyer as my daughter's dad is a lawyer himself and very accustomed to and comfortable with high-conflict legal battles. Um, I was served on July 3rd, and on July 10th I had been in to see three different lawyers and hired the one that struck me as most competent at the time and of course I had no basis whatsoever to judge what competent might look like (laughs) in a lawyer Um, but I settled on the one that spent almost an hour and a half with me and and took you know pages of notes and told me that I really really um, needed a lawyer and yet oddly I remember feeling really scared during my meeting with her It, it, it wasn't a sense that this was the, the lawyer that actually made me relax and feel... It wasn't reassuring for you. No. I, I remember the very first time that you and I spoke, which is um, a long time ago now. It was June mm-hmm. of 2012, mm-hmm. and um, I was interviewing you as part of the uh, Self-Represented Litigants National Study. Okay. And you told me that you had hired this, retained this lawyer on July the 10th, and I had all this in the notes. Um, And then on August the 24th, you described to me how you were, I think, standing in your kitchen, opening Uh the mail, and, well, do you want to go on and tell the rest of the story? Yeah, 
I, I, that day is burned in my memory. It will be forever. So I was looking through the bills, just mail, regular old mail, and opened this one from the law firm. It was the first of many, many to come. And the invoice was $24,186.25. And... And now this was August the 24th and you had retained the the lawyer on July July 10th. 10th. So, you know, six weeks. Now, this was incomprehensible for me. And, and, And it's not like I was having daily, all day long contact with the lawyer. Very little work had happened. So letters had been written back and forth. Um, we had had one interim hearing. It was just, it seemed so, so minimal, really, what had transpired in such a, a large, large amount of money in a short period of time. And what was most um, upsetting to me, alongside obviously this huge amount of money that I, I suddenly was responsible to pay, was that in the margin of the invoice in 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 the lawyer's handwriting was a little note that she'd written, Jennifer, you will have to seek the help of your family or friends. Although I had made myself very clear that that was not an option right from the very beginning, from that very first meeting, I was very honest and transparent with her about, you know, what money I had to spend on and the limits on legal on matter and, and and what I was was and wasn't willing or able to do in terms of my family or friends. So I there was such a disconnect in terms of of the trust I thought I had with this person and and certainly the communication. It was just like not apparent at all. So as you tried to recover from this thunderbolt to say nothing of how you would actually be able to find the resources to pay this enormous bill, Mm -hmm. um, you realized you couldn't go on paying at this level. So at the same time, what were you thinking that you would do next? I remember you told me that your lawyer had actually uh, warned you about representing yourself, had told you, if you represent yourself, you will be eaten alive. Yeah, those were the exact words spoken (laughs) outside of the Supreme Courthouse in downtown Vancouver immediately following a JCC. And our matter was a little bit out of the typical order. We actually had had an interim order even before a JCC had been scheduled. And a JCC is... Just so a, people understand. A judicial case conference. It's usually right. the first step and okay. often a very good opportunity to hopefully halt, you know, formal court action, action and perhaps um, mediate or, or, or... Reach a settlement. Yeah, together without the intervention of, of a judge or a formal the formal court proceedings. So... It was still fairly early on in, in the matter, but I certainly had this bill. And, and as I'd said just previously, there hadn't been a, a huge amount of time or work that had gone into the case. So, of course, my mind was thinking ahead, you know, where, where, will, where will things be three months, six months, 12 months from now? Yeah. How would I possibly continue to be paying those kinds of fees? So I was searching for options and and of course needing to communicate with the lawyer around what those options might look like 
and what they might be. And, and they were and fairly discouraging about you representing Very much so. so that, that just wasn't something that I could even really think about doing. And it was, it was appalling to me to be thinking that I would somehow represent myself in court. That was something that was unthinkable in, in that moment on that day. But of course, as, as we know, that was in fact the only option that you ended up having available to you. So mm-hmm. it, it, it was as the weeks ticked by, and um, I tried to have, you know, some concrete conversations. I needed a plan, is what I needed. I needed she and I to sit down together and say, okay, well, this is the amount of money that you have, and these are the options that you have. That didn't happen. Any conversation that I tried to initiate via via phone call or email, it just there was no further communication. And did you continue to work during this time, Jennifer? And obviously you were parenting as well. Yeah, I, I was on a parenting leave, but due to go back to work that fall, and, and I was not able to with, with what had happened. Um, just parenting a two-year-old child, I, I didn't have any help um, with that. I didn't have, have, have a nanny or babysitter. So my days were very... Um, full with with parenting and so I did the best I could I I spent you know any free moments just just on trying to to um to cope with the legal proceedings and now that uh, you know a a great deal of time has gone by I, I I really look back on that time and have a sense of of there being two problems really and one was the problem of of the legal matter and the legal issue which was non-stop pressure and worry always going through me but alongside that a second problem developed and that was this horrible dilemma of of how to deal with the first problem i i i didn't have a lawyer anymore i didn't know how to be a lawyer so that problem became a pretty good competitor to the to the original problem so the stress and the Mm. pressure that um, that I think I was under. There's there's few words for that. Jennifer, you eventually, after many efforts to try to resolve this, I know you ended up in a trial, in fact, in a nine-day trial, I believe. Mm-hmm. And again, you were completely alone. You represented yourself mm-hmm. in that trial. And, you know, it's it's hard in some ways for me even to imagine although I know you did this, it, it's hard to imagine how you did it. I wonder whether, I know a lot of this is quite traumatic, but can you just pick out a few particular enduring memories that you have of that time? Uh-huh. There's many that I have. I mean, it, sure. was an, it was an ordeal. And the months and weeks leading up to it were filled with anxiety and fear. And yeah. as I said, trying to, to parent um, my two-year-old daughter, um, each day and have that worry and dread of what lay ahead just it constantly enveloped me probably the worst memory I have and it and it wasn't rational was that I worried that without a lawyer I might even lose custody of her and I wouldn't mm-hmm. I worry, worried that I wouldn't be able to do a job worthy of what I believed would support the best interests of my daughter so that's probably the most pervasive feeling that I remember I have so many other memories, though, um, during the actual trial. Every day felt like I'd lived through many, many more hours than a normal day. Just the, the, the experience of being 
in the Supreme Court and being in the courtroom all day long and then going home. And I stayed up most nights, almost all night, every night, and trying to make sense of everything that had happened to me all day long in that courtroom. And I remember sitting alone on one side of the courtroom and on the other side was my daughter's dad and his counsel. And he had two different lawyers at various points in time. And every every minute that I spent in the courtroom, I felt like I was an uninvited guest at somewhere that I didn't belong. So it wasn't a welcoming place. And I was so aware of of pretty much failing at everything I attempted to do um, every hour of of each day in in court. Um, And, you know, all of that, with with time, it's remarkable how it it doesn't fade. Those memories really um, don't fade. But there was also this jarring realization that what I thought I knew about the justice system in Canada was an assumption that that is actually not in fact correct. In Canada, we all have access to education and we all have access to health care. And I had assumed that access to the justice system was just also something that all Canadians have the right to have access to. But I didn't. I didn't have access for the first time in my life to something that I felt was pretty much a basic human right. And here I was, a well-educated, professional, middle-class Canadian citizen, and I didn't have equal access to the justice system. I had to represent myself in a nine-day trial while the other party had access to top-notch legal counsel because that person was able to afford it. And this realization... And that was the only difference between... That was the only difference. And how is that just? How is that even permitted here in Canada? And and that is something that, you know, really ignited something within me and it's it drives me to make some sort of contribution to affect some some sort of change, whatever tiny raindrop that is in an ocean. Um So tell me, Jennifer, I know that from your own experience you have tried to take this dreadful experience and as you've just said, to turn it into energy to do work to try to make things better. Um, so tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing now with Access to Justice BC and the work you're doing on expanding unbundled legal services, mm-hmm. which is something you could have certainly used when mm-hmm. back in 2008. It definitely is. Well, the silver lining of my story about the justice system is is just that, that I'm able to be part of of a movement really an access to justice movement and i'm very fortunate to be part of um access to justice bc which is a a leadership group and i'm on the executive of that group as well which i'm very proud of because it's so important that members of the public be able to exercise a say in the in in a system in a justice system that really belongs to all of us as citizens and unbundled legal services is one of those initiatives and is of particular interest to me because of the great deal of difficulty I experienced myself trying to find that type of legal service. Um, as Can I you mentioned, just explain what that is for a moment? Well, Jennifer. it's limited scope retainers. In other words, that a client would able to be able to pay as they go or pay for uh, parts of the legal services that they feel they can't do on their own or they don't know how to do and be able to run with or do other parts of of the case themselves. 
So it certainly isn't the answer to the complex challenges of our justice system, but it, it, it is an answer for some people for some parts of their case. And it can certainly um, be a tremendous aid in, in getting people through various legal um, matters. For me, I, you know, it was terribly difficult, as I've already talked about, getting through the interim hearings. Trying to make sense of what to do to represent yourself at a trial was really impossible. And I, I was able, after a great deal of trouble, cold calling dozens of lawyers, I could not find anybody that would help me. Uh, everybody just told me, no, I'm sorry, that's not how we do things. You need to pay a new retainer and start all over. Which, which just you was, couldn't do. I couldn't do it. My money was long gone. But I needed, and I remember just begging this one lawyer finally, could I please just pay you $400 an hour? And she was emphatic, no, that was not how things things are done. And I was very, very fortunate to finally find somebody that was willing to allow me to pay him by the hour on a consultative basis on trial proceedings on, you know, what comes first, second, and third, and what were the things I needed to do. And that really allowed me to participate in the justice system and in my So he could coach you through it a little bit. Yes. And so because of that personal experience, of course, trying to figure out how can these services become more accessible to other people is really, really important to me. So I was so keen and excited to have Access to Justice BC adopt unbundled legal services as an early initiative and was very, very fortunate to begin working alongside uh, Carrie Boyle on a Mediate BC project that she um, has project managed. Jennifer, you're, it's it's an amazing story that you tell, although unfortunately one that's not untypical for so many people who are going through the legal system without representation. But the way that you tell it and the work that you're now doing is really inspiring. So I just want to say thank you very much indeed for talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much, Julie. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Jennifer's story has always really affected me since the first time I read it in the original study and then afterwards came to realize that that was Jennifer because yeah. of course she was anonymized mm-hmm. in the in the original study uh, for a lot of reasons her story really affected me but one of the things that always really struck me was as she talks about the really frustrating attempt at trying to make her lawyer understand or she thought she had made her lawyer understood what her financial situation was and that she could only afford this much and that going Mm. to her family and friends was not an option and it just was completely disregarded on that and then she got that note saying you better go to your family yeah yeah I know I think you know one of the things that came out of the original study but which I've seen in my research data with clients for many years now, is that we don't still have a way of teaching lawyers how to really listen to what's going on for people. And I'm sure that that lawyer and you know other lawyers believe that they're paying attention, but they're mm-hmm. actually paying attention to the particular things and not to other things. And so I hear constantly from the clients of lawyers that they don't feel that they really heard what they were saying. And I don't think it's it's not malicious or intentional, but there is a kind of a training 
programming that goes on that only enables them to listen for certain things. And then one of the other things that Jennifer talked about and that really stood out to me in this conversation that you had with her was her comparison of the justice system to uh, the Canadian healthcare system mm. or our education mm -hmm. system and how she had assumed, as had I until about a year ago, and any of my friends and family who I've since talked to about this issue, educated, informed people who just kind of assumed that if you needed a lawyer and you couldn't mm -hmm. afford one, one would be provided for you yep. because that's the idea we have in our head from, you know, mass media. And just, I guess that's kind of the assumption as Canadians that you would have too, because it seems like our other major systems are provided in large part. So the shock of coming up against reality and finding out that, no, in fact, if you need a lawyer, you've got to come up with that. Right. Even when you can't do that yeah. or you've exhausted your funds. And, and again, you know, that is such a theme that runs through the interviews that we've done with self-represented litigants and the people that we continue to hear from on the, at the project. I mean, both of these things that come up in Jennifer's story, which in is unique because it's Jennifer's story and it's, as you say, an extremely poignant and moving story. I still feel upset for her every single time she Absolutely. tells me about that nine-day trial. Mm -hmm. But it's this idea that, you know, you hadn't expected that you would be in this place and that this has actually come as a big shock mm -hmm. is, is something that resonates throughout so many of these stories. And that's why we called this episode... It couldn't happen to me. In other news, the big news of the last week has been the surprise announcement of Justice Richard Posner that he would retire from the bench. Justice Posner is a very well-known and respected U.S. federal judge and law professor. A septuagenarian judge retiring may not sound very exciting, but Posner has told interviewers that the reason for his sudden retirement was that he was, quote, very concerned about how the courts treat pro se litigants, who I believe deserve a better shake, end quote. Posner says that he now wants to work on making legal assistance affordable and promises to say a great deal more in considerable detail on this subject in an upcoming book. This story is posted on the webpage for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. One of the ideas that the NSRLP has been advocating for is the wider use of Mackenzie Friends in the courtroom. Mackenzie Friends are friends or supporters of self-represented litigants who are permitted by the judge to sit up front alongside the SRL to take notes for them, hand them documents, and generally help them to remain calm and focused in a very stressful situation. While some rules of court allow for Mackenzie friends at a judge's discretion, this summer the British Columbia Provincial Court went an important step further, producing guidelines advising SRLs on when and how they might request a Mackenzie friend. Former Judge Anne Rothwaite describes the purpose of the guidelines, which were developed with the full support of the BC Chief Justice. Quote, we hope the guidelines will make a significant contribution to access to justice by providing self-represented litigants with a measure of certainty about when they will be permitted to have a support person help them in provincial court and the scope of that help. End quote. 
In addition, the court has produced plain language publicity materials to promote the program. Crystal Law, a Windsor Law student and NSRLP volunteer, worked with Anne on this project over the summer. We want to give a big shout out to BC for this initiative, and we hope that more courts will follow this lead. Both the guidelines and the publicity materials are posted on our podcast webpage. Finally, If you haven't already seen it, we have just released a new NSRLP primer on how to read a case, a companion for our Can Lee primer. If you are looking for help with a strategy for your legal research, these two documents, written specifically for SRLs, are a great place to start. Links to all these resources and stories can be found on the page for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower on the NSRLP website, representingyourselfcanada.com. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, next week's episode is called Changing Faces in the Justice System. And I'm going to be talking to Ranjan Agarwal, who is a lawyer with Bennett Jones and was our pro bono lawyer for the National Self-Represented Litigants Project when we went to the Supreme Court of Canada earlier this year. Ranjan also plays a very important part in his professional community. He's just been elected to the executive of the Ontario Bar Association. So I'm going to be talking to Ranjan about his hopes and fears for the future of the legal profession.